0: Podcast One Production Two Hundred Years Ago people believed electricity could reanimate the dead. That's the whole plot of Frankenstein right there. A hundred years later, people went to health spas to be strapped into gently shocking electric corsets because electricity was good for you. A Few years after that, people drank radium waters because radiation was good for you too. At the beginning of the 20th century, people foresaw a future of electricity and radiation, even thinking machines, that promised a sort of utopia. We've seen it before, and we're seeing it again. Good day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to philosopher and author Eric Davis about faith in technology, in utopia, and in what that tells us about who we are. Faith in the future on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Let me return to a moment I've already shared with you. It was in my interview with cryptocurrency expert Mark Jeffrey. So it's May of 1994. I'm at CERN. That's the giant atom smasher that's nestled under the edge of the Alps outside of Geneva. I'm one of about 350 folks who found their way to the very first conference on the World Wide Web. It was organized by the inventor of the web, Tim Berners-Lee, now Sir Tim Berners-Lee. And the three days of that conference, they were among the most important in my life. I was surrounded by people who were living and breathing this brand new web just as I was. We all shared our work with one another. We all gave presentations. We attended presentations, went on a cruise on Lake Geneva and got drunk. We made friends. We made notes. So many people were doing so many different things within the web, things I never imagined. It was, it was mind-blowing. But even with all of that talk, there was one thing that was never said, that the web would change everything. It didn't need to be said. We all knew it. In our bones, we knew it. We may have been scientists and researchers, but we were all true believers. And it's not hard to see why. For almost a hundred years, people had predicted vast electronic brains that could deliver all of human knowledge to anyone, anywhere, and the web was that promise realized. Maybe not fully realized in May of 1994, that's three years before Google and seven years before Wikipedia, but we could see it, and we believed In the 24 years since that first conference, the web has grown to encompass a significant portion of human knowledge. This is the utopia we've been hoping for. So why is it that the father of the web warns us that it's all gone horribly wrong? Tim Berners-Lee talks about the danger of the web as a technology of continuous surveillance and the power of firms like Facebook and Google that profile our every move online. The web of 2018, it's no utopia. And it may be that one of the reasons why lies in our mistaken belief that this time things would be different, a new frontier with new rules, a future we could believe in. Our guest on this episode has thought longer and harder about this topic than almost anyone else. Twenty years ago, Eric Davis published his first book, Technosis. It's one of only two books that I own, the other being Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media that felt like it was being written into my mind as I read it. It explains so much about why we believe in technology, in utopia, in perfection, in our capacities to embody our best qualities all the time. And the book is as relevant today as it was two decades ago, probably more so in a moment when technology gives us a lot of reasons to pause and reconsider whether this is the future we wanted and whether our faith in that future hurts us more than it helps us. Eric, welcome to The Next Billion Seconds. Hey, great to be here, Mark. The world of 1998, it was it was just coming into being. All the things that we have today and that we're totally used to, they were just getting started. But we're now, in 2018, 20 years later, starting to call this more of a dystopia. So it seems like we just swung wildly from one pole to another. Why do we always want to see this as a utopia at the beginning? Yeah, I think the best
1: place to start for that one is just to, to think about why there was so much excitement in the first place, and you know, you and I are both the uh, uh, guinea pigs in that process. I mean, we were both there in the late '80s, 1990s, before the World Wide Web, tuning into virtual reality, uh, starting to get a sense of this, you know, magnificent and unprecedented change on the horizon—a change that we actually kind of helped manifest through our our interests, through our, the, the creative work that we did. Um, so, we can kind of speak personally as well, uh, and I think that a lot of it has to do with something really um, almost magical about media technology. I mean, we can talk about technology in general as a sign of utopia, the way that some new device enters into the world, and we can see its potential, and we want so much to believe that a better world is not only possible, but manifestable as something that we can actually engineer that I think we tend to uh, not see the, the, the consequences. So we're sort of in a perpetual sorcerer's apprentice with technology. Uh, but the, the real issue, I think, here is has to do with media technology. When we use new devices to communicate with one another, we not only have the sort of expectations that we bring to new engineering solutions to the problems of, of the world, of getting and spending, of food and resources and energy and life extension, but in addition, we have something much more peculiar, which is communication itself. And while communication is something that we do every day completely naturally, as if it is just, you know, as, as ordinary as uh, drinking your coffee in the morning, it's actually kind of amazing when you think of it. I'm, I'm making these mouth noises, they're going directly into your brain, meaning and, sen- and sense is happening simultaneously, it's not something you have to decode. And even when we look at words in the in, in a language that we that we know... They immediately leap into our minds. You know, they create uh, uh, you know sense and meaning instantaneously. And we are swimming in a sea of symbols and meanings all of the time. And it's not the same thing as the world that our bodies uh, uh, live in, even if it's ultimately part of our material existence. So when you combine these two things, when you have new technologies with their promise of engineering better solutions to the problems of the day, combined with the sort of almost spirituality of communication, something that you can find in, the, in our religious history very clearly, uh, we could talk more about that, Um, Then we get into a situation where it's, I think, even more attractive to imagine that this new media that we're dealing with is going to deliver uh, something magical, something profound,
0: something uh, extraordinary. So you're really on this. When we start working with symbols, and let's face it, the computer is the machine that allows us to manipulate symbols. We get to see them. We get to transmit them. We get to process all of them. That changes our capacity to share them. And when we did that, we said, oh, look, we can all share all these symbols. We can share all this knowledge. There's going to be a world full of knowledge. There's not going to be any ignorance and I guess what we've learned now is we can have all of that knowledge and it doesn't make us any wiser. So how did we end up going from one extreme to another, from believing that there's going to be this great global mind to an organization like Cambridge Analytica that lies to us at global scale?
1: Yeah, it, that's in a way the real question is why we didn't learn our lesson by now. Um, I mean, my, the, the example that I usually bring in in this uh, is the telegraph. Now, most of us now, we think about the telegraph and we imagine, you know, maybe, uh, a, you know, a Western, you know, they're telling you that the outlaws are coming and it's just so, it's sort of hokey. Um, and But of course, the telegraph was very important at the time. Uh, it really did ch- transform time and space. And that's how it was seen is like, oh my God, now there is a new media where we can communicate effectively instantaneously across the globe if you have a cable uh, connecting the two points that are communicating. And at the time, if you go back and read the rhetoric uh, of, you know, in Congress in, in the United States, for example, you have people talking about this new world beyond space and overcoming space and time and a world where education would, would be able to be transmitted throughout the globe and people from different perspectives would be able to understand each other. And you're like, this is all very familiar. And we saw the same thing with, uh, with television even though we are now suffering through the dystopian backlash of having fantasized along very similar lines this way <laughs> about the about the internet we're we're doing it with virtual reality. You hear people putting forward the idea that virtual reality is going to allow us, in fact, it's already being used this way to get inside the perspectives of other people, of yeah. oppressed people, of people of color, of women, and da da da. I have no doubt that that can be effective in in small in certain situations. But it's it's what's more noticeable is once again there's this kind of hope, this sort of. Increasingly, almost a little pathetic hope that this gear is going to deliver us from these deeper faults and fears, and I don't want to say evils, but let's say, uh, you know, deeply selfish. Uh, And sometimes quite exploitative and violent tendencies that human beings seem to have stitched in them as deeply as we have love and compassion and the desire for a better world.
0: Yeah, and of course this makes perfect sense. When you stick yourself in an amplifier and the internet is an amplifier, all of the positive qualities and negative qualities get amplified. I mean, Someone told me a long time ago that the only thing that you can bring onto the internet is yourself. And so if what you're seeing is all this bad stuff, guess where it came from? and it's interesting that we're starting to see virtual reality have some of the same stories told about it this is a good time to mention that Tony Parisi who's a 25-year pioneer in virtual reality will be on our next show but even he doesn't come from the beginnings of virtual reality which are back in 1985 so 35 years ago and they gave us this idea from the beginning of this Perfect synthetic world that we were going to be living this perfect machine generated vision, it was going to be ideal. And lately, there's this idea that we can actually put ourselves in other shoes that we can see what it's like to be someone else or somewhere else in another situation. But there's been a lot of pushback on this idea that virtual reality is an empathy machine, that in fact, maybe rather than putting yourself in someone's shoes, it's almost more like emotional tourism where you can get a look in without actually having to experience any of the horror or the terror or the sadness of someone. And so you can see this whole arc of just complete belief in utopia into this kind of dystopian undertake happening in virtual reality. And we get the same promises now with cryptocurrencies. People say, oh, it's going to be the answer to all sorts of trust. It's going to fix the financial system. It'll bring equity to the markets. Money is symbolic, right? It's symbolic in the same way that knowledge is. So aren't we just going to see the same thing all over again?
1: Uh, I completely believe that uh, uh you know i, I remain uh, maybe cautiously optimistic on on some days and while i cannot pretend to be a uh, a cryptocurrency uh uh you know wizard and therefore in some sense i have to trust others as i develop my own balance of skepticism and hope um i feel confident from the problems with cryptocurrency and particularly the uh ways in which they can be manipulated, uh, that that there's an element of this, that especially when you have all of the, the, uh, the money uh, forcing the issue as well on top of the idea of social good, um, that it will be very easy to once again uh, stir up hope stir up a kind of fantasy of perfection, of engineered perfection, which I think is an important point, uh, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, and then at the same time, we're not paying attention to unintended consequences, we're not paying attention to new forms of manipulation, um, and we're not paying attention to, in a, in some sense, the difficulties that are raised simply by radical disruption of our existing social consensus reality, That that even if the opening up of possibilities is, uh, does have the potential to really make things better, and so might even be worth it, might even be worth the bet um, that the disruption itself is so turbulent that it allows uh, all sorts of actors with all sorts of agendas sort of more room to maneuver. And that's, I think, the kind of game we're,
0: we're in right now. So, Eric, you're really talking about when we introduce a new technology, we overplay all of the benefits, and then we underplay all of the ways it tends to break things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, disruption—it's it's amazing that that has become such a, a, a positive principle, or the or the move fast and break things uh, philosophy of of our of, of our man our man Z um, that what like who picks up the pieces you know it's it, it's like the 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 downside or the shadow side of disruption is right there in the word is right there in our in our vision and so it, it's hard to reconcile this notion of disruption with a larger view of society where everybody's getting along better like if you have a view that's based on you know, that's trying to bring in as many people into the benefits of the technology as possible, that the model and metaphor of disruption, of moving fast and breaking things, doesn't really work. It works well for alpha males. It works well for exploiters. It works well for people who are brilliant and, and just want to, like, you know, see how far and fast they can take their brilliance. But I think that the larger, the broader your embrace... Uh, of society, of others, of people living in very different circumstances, I think it does counsel a certain kind of, I don't want to say conservatism, uh, because that is a loaded term. caution. Caution, exactly. I was going to say caution is the term. And I don't, I'm still puzzled by the way in which the caution that all of the people I know and people I have conversations with who I, you know, who I meet, that everybody acknowledges this the diciness of the situation in conversation, and yet somehow we still are almost like stuck in this story of development of, of as rapid as possible, as if the logic of efficiency or the, the logic of, of new markets just supersedes all of the sense of, of, of caution that I think of as operating on a more human scale. And maybe this is part of the process that we can't stop, but I, at the very least I would like to see more of that caution as being a part of wisdom, as something that we – a value that we want to bring forward and not just a sign that you're a fuddy-duddy or a Luddite or you're not – you're, you're going to get, uh, you know, overcome by the latest transformation. Uh,
0: isn't it that there's that Zen proverb, make haste slowly? Hey, that's a
1: good one. I hadn't even that's heard so that bad. one. I study Zen.
0: Let's do that. Let's make <laughs> haste slowly. You talked about engineered perfection. Is this why we always see the new frontiers as being perfect? Because we always believe this time we'll get it right? I think it's actually more specifically about
1: engineering itself. One of the things that we, I think we miss sometimes is to recognize how many of these situations um, have to do with the way in, in which engineers are, are educated, the way in which they conceive of their labors, and, the, and once again, the history of engineering, what it comes out of. And if there's one part of the modern world of all, with all its variety of professions and skills and, and wizardry, um, if there's one f- uh, part of it that really has this kind of utopian possibility, if you will, hardwired into it, it's the engineer. Because even if the engineer works on extremely practical problems and has to be aware of the reality, the harsh reality of limitation, of noise, of confusion, of uh, unstable uh, processes, of all of the things that can go wrong. At the same time, the engineer carries a very special kind of um, utopian juice in the modern world. And if you look at the way uh engineering is taught and 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 how people are brought up to be confident in their capacity to be able to solve problems that there's kind of I don't want to say arrogance but there's a kind of hubris a hubrisism is a much better word uh and you know in many ways we we enjoy the fruits of such hubris because there are so many remarkable engineering breakthroughs that you know that create our modern world and if they have unintended consequences. That's not the fault of the people who solved very real problems using sometimes extraordinarily uh, brilliant means. But I think we're reaching a place now where the engineer has to, the the consciousness of engineering has to become complicated, and more than anything else, it has to become ethical. It's very interesting that if you look at, you know, uh, let's take doctors, you know, medicine, which has a kind of equal sort of you know, extraordinary solutions, extraordinary breakthroughs, often a sort of hubris and arrogance in its delivery. Uh, it's, uh, but but in a way, a justified one because such extraordinary things can happen. But doctors are have ethics crammed down their throats from the get get, get go. But weirdly, engineering and ethics has a sort of strange relationship in that the sense that it's very, you can be an engineer making extraordinarily powerful technologies that are going to disrupt many people's lives for better and possibly for worse, and you can do it without a code of professional ethics. So it's a its a strange, we have a kind of naivete about the engineer and a, and again, a sort of covert fantasy about the capacity of engineers to solve our problems that I think now we need to really complicate as quickly as we can.
0: I mean, so this really touches on so much. We're starting to see, I guess, a real need for engineering ethics. We recently had the first fatality produced by a self-driving car. This was an Uber in Tempe, Arizona. And the more we looked at it, the more that we saw that it was a failure, not just in a car, but in the driver who was sitting behind the wheel monitoring the car. Dana Boyd, who does a lot of work in this space and who we'll try to have on later in this series, recently talked about this idea of the moral crumple zone where you basically stick a human in an autonomous system so that you have something that you can blame when the autonomous system fails, when the car kills someone, when the plane crashes, whatever it is. And so now you can see that all these engineering decisions that we're making are producing ethical dilemmas. And I remember a few years ago, I was emceeing an event where Walid Ali, Quite a prominent Australian philosopher was speaking, and he explained to an audience full of folks who are basically all engineers something called the trolley problem. The trolley problem is a famous problem in philosophy. There's a trolley that's speeding down the tracks, and if it continues speeding down its tracks, it's going to kill five people. You have the power to flip a switch so that it can go onto a second track, and it will kill one person. And now the question is, is it ethical for you to flip that switch or not? He's explaining this to a thousand engineers in a room, and I can literally see the pennies dropping because they got a complete education in engineering and never had a lesson in ethics. They had no framework for thinking about this. So is this where we're going to need to start to build some sort of curbs around our own hubris around our incredible capacity.
1: Yeah, I I believe that, I mean, in a pragmatic way, that one of the things to do is to raise these issues is that to you, you that you shouldn't be able to engineer in a vacuum, that you shouldn't be able to go through and become a professional engineer, whether we're talking mechanical engineering or we're talking electronic engineering, we're talking about all sorts of things that we associate with that that role, that that capacity, that that character type, if you will, without having ethics there from the get-go. And so now you know we're playing catch up, and your examples are, are absolutely uh, are, are perfect to 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 capture that sense in which there's something missing in the mind frame of the engineer and not being an engineer but always being interested in them and knowing the history and knowing a lot of engineers and like you sort of swimming in a world where i knew a lot of people and 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 kind of could appreciate the perspective it was always clear to me that engineering was going on inside of a larger cultural field where these different questions were raised and it took me a long time to realize how many brilliant how brilliant Engineers could be, and how incredibly clueless they could be uh, about these larger contexts and implications. So, at the very least, we need to get the get the pros uh, wrangling with these issues big time and doing so in public. Uh, you know, in the same way that we are now asking a medical professionals to have a little more accountability about how they treat us and our desires and the way in which we are
0: also participants
1: in our own uh, healing. And, and I think it, th- that is starting to happen, but it needs to happen a lot faster.
0: We're talking to Eric Davis about philosophy, ethics, science, utopia, and we'll be right back. And we're back talking to author and philosopher Eric Davis about our faith in technologies. So, Eric, in the next billion seconds, that's out to about 2050, we are going to see enormous growths in our capacities for artificial intelligence. And you can already see a lot of this dynamic playing out. It's being positioned as a god. It's being positioned as a demon. It's going to put everyone out of work. It's going to be an answer to all of our problems. It's going to drive all of our cars. It's going to make the city smart. It's going to be watching us all of the time. So you have that whole sort of plus and minus thing going on. Then you have everything that's going on in medicine. Of course, we're starting to see real genetic medicine now. But we're also starting to see all sorts of research that unlocks the body in different ways. And you can see with this incredible amount of understanding that we're getting the body, and a lot of it will be coming through artificial intelligence, that it started people thinking about a concept that was really almost just magical not that many years ago, this idea of biological immortality. And you have a real community of people who think that it's realizable, who are rational, who have multi-point plans, and who are deeply, deeply dedicated to making this happen. It's really become its own set of beliefs, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, I I, I mean, that is one part of a larger cluster, which we can think of perhaps as transhumanism, um, where there are a number of different uh, visionary possibilities that are, are brought together, artificial intelligence, the, uh, the waking up of a sort of global mind that we're able to interface with, perhaps uh, life extension through biology, through uh, fusion with technologies, um, extrapolating the, the, the sort of human capitalist uh, uh, developmental process throughout uh, the solar system and perhaps beyond um, while different people hold different uh, aspects of these visions uh, uh, more important than others there's still a sort of general uh, sort of sensibility we could say that um, you know we've we've been around for for decades uh, but is definitely part part of the f- forces that are driving the show. Um, And I think, you know, you you mentioned, well, these are rational people, as if because they're rational people, we should not expect to see a form of belief or hope or fantasy that if we really think about it's actually uh, not very rational in the way that we think of many religions as not being very rational in some ways. But I think this this is to play into a, a kind of Uh, illusion or fantasy about rationality, about reason, which is that if we hand it over to reason, if we say, faced with all the problems in the world and all the different ways we might live our lives or the different things we might put hope in, tradition, uh, religion, uh, personal uh, relationships, language, uh, all of these different kinds of things, I'm going to put my money on reason as being the thing that's going to to, to most clarify and, and give us a, a handle on the future, that's fine. Uh, but there are zillions of examples of people who are doing that, and yet simultaneously, the value system that they're running on and the the fantasies or ideals or uh, uh, dreams that are motivating them are not themselves really parsed as reasonable or or rational or or irrational. And so you actually find, all sorts of combinations of reason, and I don't want to say the non-rational because it's not really fair. But let's let's say visionary thinking or dreaming, uh, so that you can have ex- exceptionally fine scientists who are who are deeply Christian. It, it, you know, afterlife, mm. resurrection, and there's not a couple of them. There's a lot of them. And the reverse is also true, that you can find deeply rationalist, logical people, such as we see with the New Atheists, for example, Richard Dawkins, and the sort of people who identify with that kind of deployment of reason against religion, against what they see as sort of irrational fantasies. And if you dig down in those people as well, you find patterns of religion, patterns of, uh, of of faith, patterns of fantasy that really are not that different than a lot of the fantasies that have driven human beings throughout uh, their existence. In fact, one of the funny things about the new atheists in particular, and we can come back to the transhumanists since they obviously overlap in, in many ways, is that if you're trained in the history of religion, which I am, just meaning that I know a lot about the uh, you know, how Christianity unfolded in the West over many centuries, from the ancient world, through the Middle Ages, through the early modern period and into today, it's incredibly obvious and totally a totally banal insight among people who know this history, that what you see with the new atheists, the kind of uh, the militancy, the arrogance, and even some of the specific arguments they make are very clearly in, uh, right in line with any number of Protestant heresies, any number of Protestant sectarian movements. And in many ways, sec- modern secular the modern secular world is 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 birthed from christianity it's not like there's a moment where suddenly everybody changes sides and takes off these old medieval clothes and steps into bright new secular you know designs it's it's much more complicated than that and so it's very important to always you know, uh, be leery of claims of rationality, as if rationality is going to deliver the the uh, clarify the appropriate goals or the appropriate values or the appropriate dreams and ideals. Uh, and so, this is this is. I think we see this very clearly with some of this life extension or immortality dreams that that, that are motivating people. Yes, we should explore this realm, but the resources and the fantasy structures, I would say, the, the, and by fantasy, I don't mean that it's not going to happen, that it's just a fantasy. I mean that there's there's it's a dream that's fueled with desire, and that we should be, be wary of, that we should be su- suspect of, because a, a huge amount of what we do as human beings, for better and for worse, has to do with our denial of death. It's not like if if there are contemporary immortalists who believe that their supplements or the new genetic technology or robots that they can upload their brains in or whatever the thing is that they think is going to provide actual immortality, it's not like they're the first people to deny death. In some sense... Human civilization itself is built on a denial of death because you have to have some investment that what you're doing is is you know possibly <laughs> going to get you over this thing that we're all sort of staring in the face of at some basic existential level. And I'm by no means the first person to to say that. There's a long you know uh, discussion about the denial of death. So at the moment we're in right now, this is the way I think of the question. When we can look out there, and we see such extraordinary suffering, when we look out there and and we see the 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 environment itself beginning to go into this kind of you know self slaughter, if you will, uh, uh, you know, driven by human activity, sure, but also just kicking off this in extraordinary extinction event that we're already in the midst of. When there's so much death around us, that I I have some issues with putting all of our fantasy power into genetic technologies that are going to allow some people, probably not that many of us, percentage-wise, maybe in the long run, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be the way that things work so far in technological capitalism, that allow some of us to have you know, lives that, that go much, you know, beyond the average and possibly even achieve a certain kind of immortality. So, it's, you know, it it, it it raises a lot of qualms, let's put it that way.
0: Okay, then, Eric, if we can accept that our beliefs about the future are beliefs, even when we're trying to be super, super rational, that we're still really believing, does it make sense to adopt a more accepting attitude, to own those beliefs that when we have a point of view about the future, that the future is visionary and faith-based and what we want to believe and that we can own that? I mean, if we do that, does that then deflate the drive to utopia?
1: Um, I would like to think that it it would deflate some of the the ease with which we fall into naive utopian thinking. It doesn't mean it's going to stop these processes. You know, human Mm -hmm. desire alone and even the inertia of institutions, the inertia of capital, its desire to continue to do its game, except better and faster and more efficiently and with greater return, ensures that our 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 individual values as people thinking about technology are only going to do so much. And yet it is on the level of values. I believe that we have the greatest hope to steer the future in a positive way. That it's not going to come about through an engineering solution. It's got to. There's got to be shifts in values. I don't know how likely it is, uh, but I, I I do believe that, and I think becoming wiser about. Um, What's driving us uh, is it not only w- helpful, but a great opportunity to really recognize what's really going on here and how, I mean, one of the things that just surprised me, this is a trivial, very trivial example compared to how much, um, you know, these big issues we've been talking about is just the expectations people have that some new application or new software process or, you know, a new platform or, or whatever is going to solve the, you know all their problems it, it it's it blows my mind because everybody's you know unless you're you know 12 years old you've had a, a experience of many iterations now of this we've been doing this for a long time and is your life is it is it easier is it really easier it's like no it's complicated we are in a process of complexification every every step forward every new platform everything is 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 a move in a, in an ever complexifying field that is just going to be stressful sheerly because of its complexity, let alone all of the particular problems and incommensurate platforms and problems with noise and problems with increasing... Po- whatever, all the different ways that that, that, that real issues impede the, the, the manifestation of the engineering dream, just the complexity of it alone is stressful at the very best, uh, if not actually maddening, unhelpful, and you know, uh, disempowering to so many parts of our... I mean, I think of myself as like pretty good at this stuff. I mean, I'm not a geek, but I've been doing it since the early 90s. And I'm like, ama- when I see how difficult some things are for me, and I think about older people, I think about people who haven't had the education you know, I, I'm not so worried about the kids, but, like, you know, people in my generation or whatever, I'm like, wow, this is going to get really, really hard for people. So I think that by getting um, a little sharper about the utopian fantasies that still manage to motivate our desire or to to uh, uh, trick our desire to, you know, uh, uh, hook it, uh, that if we get a little wiser about that, I think even slowing down the process a bit would give people more, more breathing room. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But uh, I would like to think that at the very least, it'll, it gives us an opportunity to become clearer about what our real values are and also about what actually happens when when these things uh, enter into the world and all the, the, the game of Sorcerer's Apprentice uh, that we're in. We don't want to look at it because it's terrifying, but mm-hmm. it's
0: true. Okay, Eric, let's go out to 2050. That's a billion seconds from now. What does faith look like? You've studied this. You can probably give a better answer to this than almost anyone else. I mean, obviously, we're going to still have the standard religions we think of today, the mainstream ones. But when we see people worshiping an artificial intelligence that's so advanced, you can't really understand what's going on with it. You can only take its answers on faith, but those answers are so good and so reliable are we going to be in these kind of weird new faith relationships around our technologies as they become more complex than we can understand?
1: Um, I would not be surprised at at that because there's already a lot of, uh, of language, or, or people having discussions, even in places I wouldn't expect. Like, uh, I know that there's been you know, conferences on, say, artificial intelligence and Buddhism, with the idea that how do we actually program compassion into the AIs? How do we, using, let's say, Buddhist logical forms of uh, how how to show that things both are and are not at the same time, or some, you know, really arcane Philosophical point: How can those help allow the machine to become, if not enlightened, then at least step towards that kind of compassionate worldview? So that's just a discussion that's already happening now, when the powers of of AI are relatively modest, with some important exceptions, uh, and you know we we still haven't seen these robust. Interactive agents that we can have complex conversations and can anticipate and draw from vast fields that we don't, uh, we can't do as as human beings. So once that process gets going, uh, it, it strikes me as almost inevitable that even if they start out almost as jokes,
0: well, I mean, Alexa and Siri—they're basically that right now. They're basically jokes, but we know they'll get better.
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 so I don't, I don't think that's. Hard to imagine at all. I mean, listen, if, you know, you you said it in your article, The Last Days of Reality, that what reality feels like is, is transforming, is becoming turbulent. It's not that there's no reality or reality is just in our heads, but reality is a kind of shared field that involves institutions and perceptions that kind of have a regularity that we can trust over time, that reality, I believe, is is going away in a lot of ways. And so, in that new space where there's everything's a bit more turbulent and plastic, the old strategies of religion are going to be very helpful for a lot of people just to feel like they have a clue, just to manage their fear, just to manage their confusion. So, some of the more crude aspects of faith are definitely not going away. Um and that and there will be better technologies, virtual realities, uh, apps that monitor your behavior, that link you to the hive mind, that link you to other believers, that support your particular
0: reality. Uh, well, you just described Facebook there, so yes. <laughs>
1: well, that's a that's a good <laughs> example there. But I think we could we're going to see you know uh, a, an explosion of 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 that that kind of faith. But I think where there's also going to be Some of the more sophisticated aspects of religion, of uh, questions about consciousness, questions about compassion, questions about how, about empathy, that those conversations, which have, they don't necessarily need to manifest as religion with a capital R, but they have religious roots. And in some ways, religions allow us to sort of explore and resonate with those questions uh, oftentimes easier than. Uh, secular legal language or or engineering thinking uh, allow us to do that. Those things will also be part uh, part of the picture, and will will some of those will will those values help structure the algorithmic principles that are that these AIs are going to you know, be running on that will actually affect their behavior? I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know how that's going to, to, to work out, but I don't see it going away. It's going to be part, um, part of the conversation.
0: Eric Davis, it has been a pleasure to talk to you on The Next Billion Seconds.
1: Well, thanks, Mark. It was a blast
0: listening to Eric Davis, you get a sense for a kind of conversation about technology that we're not really having. A conversation that acknowledges our own sense of what's right and wrong and how that can color both our expectations and our dreams for what's possible with technology. And somehow when those technologies take off, when they become a big part of our lives, those dreams actually imprison us. They constrain what we think is possible or what we believe is possible. And sometimes we even overlook the most important bits, the most human bits in a drive to create something that's perfect, that's going to solve all of our problems. And in the end. What we learn is that it's not perfect. It's not the perfect solution. It's just another part of the kit of humanity that we'll be taking forward into the next billion seconds. We'll be linking to Eric Davis's details, including his podcast, Expanding Mind. So be sure to look for that on our website, nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking ethically? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, send us a message on Twitter, look at our LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the shape of the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of this second series of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be speaking to virtual reality pioneer Tony Parisi about synthesizing reality and how that will change the way we see things. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.